Hello, welcome or welcome back to the Just Eat Normally podcast for eating disorder recovery with me, Dr. Rachel Evans. I am a psychologist, hypnotherapist with a PhD in the psychology of eating and specialist training in eating disorder recovery as well as personal experience of going through an eating disorder and coming out the other side which makes me super passionate about what I do and in every episode as with my one-to-one clients I'm bringing you academic knowledge, information and theories as well as therapeutic skills and personal experiences, be that mine or experiences of my guests, for a unique perspective on eating disorder recovery. So join me on this podcast as I speak to fellow experts in eating disorder recovery, eating disorder survivors with inspiring stories, and also throw in some bite-sized solo episodes with recovery tips or new ways for you to think about things. The goal of this podcast is to give you food for thought, to shift your mindset, to boost your motivation, and to help you find your own version of normal eating, which will allow you to live a truly nourished life. Hey everyone, welcome back. Today we are joined by Carly Newberg. She is an author a substitute teacher and a freelancer specializing in writing, editing and marketing. As an adolescent, she struggled with an eating disorder, anorexia, bulimia and exercise addiction, which has contributed to her passion for mental health and overall well-being. And Carly has been recovered for five years and recently worked in a residential treatment facility with those aiming to recover. And now she gives talks, she leads workshops and events throughout Oregon And you can hear her full story um, by reading or listening to Carly's memoir. It's called Good Enough, Believing Beautiful Through Trauma, Through Life, Through Disorder. And you can get that on Amazon, possibly amongst other places. (laughs) (laughs) She's nodding like, yeah. (laughs) Yes. Barnes and Noble and Audible as well. Yeah, we do have um, Barnes and Noble here, but I actually had a client in America who was telling me like Barnes and Noble apparently is really nice um, in America with like coffee shops in and just a nice place to spend time. Yeah, it definitely. Yeah, I actually thought about being a barista at one of the coffee shops. They're really cozy little places to go hang out and read a book. Ah, interesting. <laughs> You're like, read this book. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> Yeah, is there anything else you'd like to say to introduce yourself to everyone? No, I think you included everything. Okay, perfect. Uh, yeah, I guess the only other thing would be that I live in, you know, in the United States in Baker City, Oregon, which is in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what was your relationship with food like when you were growing up? Yeah, um, food for me growing up was really inconsistent. Uh, that That is after my parents got a divorce when I was eight years old. Um, before that, I had a lot of joy associated with food. Um, my mom ran a daycare out of our home and watched a lot of different kids uh, in our home. And I have a lot of memories of her putting together snack platters, um, you know, just making like all of these yummy meals and desserts and really enjoying food and the pleasure that came with it. Um, 
after my parents got divorced when I was eight years old, my dad got full custody over me and my older brother. Um, and food became a lot more inconsistent uh, with my mom being out of the picture and not really being there to provide in the ways that she did before. Um, and my dad was, uh, I guess, more focused on his mental turmoil at that time, um, more selfish in the way that he spent his time. So not being home very often, um, leaving my brother and I to kind of care for ourselves a lot. Um, and not really having the house fully stocked with groceries all the time. So um, there were a lot of nights where I didn't know uh, if dad was gonna make dinner, if he was gonna bring home dinner, if we just weren't gonna have dinner and we were kind of on our own for that night. Um, my needs as a kid weren't really like taken into consideration with food. So I wasn't really ever asked after that point by my dad um, what I might want for dinner or you know, what I wanted for snacks in the house. So um, it made me really greedy as a kid after that point when it came to times where I did get around a lot of food at like social gatherings or celebrations um, because I didn't know when that chance was gonna happen again to uh, have these yummy foods and things that I liked. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, that sounds really difficult. And um, what you're saying would make a lot of sense. Like you're saying, if the food isn't available, then you'll be like, that's food I'm having it um now that sounds really difficult was your brother like older or younger he was older than me five years he's five years older than me mm -hmm. and was he any help like cooking and stuff were you both kind of in the same boat yeah he he was more helpful um but you know my dad would go to work and we'd be at home like together through the summer and we'd have a list of chores and he would basically bribe me to cook for me <laughs> so he'd be like you know if you do my if you do the vacuuming I'm supposed to do today or if you give me a back rub then I'll cook you macaroni and cheese or like I'll, <laughs> I'll make you something so there was a lot of bribing involved with it um, and if there was something in it for him then he might cook me something but uh, you know I have some memories of like calling my mom, uh, crying and telling her like, there's nothing to eat here. Like dad didn't go to the grocery store. I don't know where he is. Um, I'm hungry. And one of my uh, memories talking to my mom on the phone was when she taught me how to make pancakes over the phone um, and sort of walked me through that so that I could have dinner that night. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm super, super grateful for that. And that we were still, still able to have phone communication sometimes, but there were times when my dad even cut off communication on the phone with my mom. Um, so yeah, it was difficult. Um, and yeah, just that, that um, fear of like not having enough, uh, that fear of, I don't know when I'm going to get food again, um, or, you know, just being really selfish over the times when uh, I was a really picky kid. So when there was something I liked, I wanted more of it because it was like, wow, I finally like something and I'm not being forced to eat something I don't like, uh, which was another thing that my dad did was, um, you know, I'd get in trouble a lot if I didn't finish all the food that was on my plate or if I didn't like something. He was very demanding in the way of like, you need to eat that. Like, this is what's for dinner and you're not leaving the table until you finish your plate. Um, so it, uh, yeah, it was hard to let go and sort of like release control when I did like something or I had freedom over 
what I was eating or I wasn't being supervised or like condemned when I was eating yeah and it sounds like as well like if you think of like the hierarchy of needs like having food or nourishment along with shelter and things is like our basic need and so if that wasn't being met then you probably aren't in the position to like share your food with other people because like you say you don't know when there's going to be more you're going to have that thing that you like um and so I guess when did this turn more into like either disordered eating or an eating disorder oh when oh when did it turn into one Mm -hmm. um yeah when I was um I was in high school uh about a sophomore in high school and I started running cross country. Um, I actually had just started running on my own at first and then eventually joined the cross country team. Um, But I became really fascinated at that time with, uh, you know, eating healthy and making sure that I was fueling my body with the right foods. Um, And I'm very much so, or I have been in the past, a black and white thinker in my life. Um, Someone who's very like goal oriented, uh, I, I do tend to strive for perfection, even though it's not attainable. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, that caused me when it came to healthy eating to want to fuel my body in the right ways. And I very much so thought there was a right way that you should be eating. There was a right way that you should look. Um, and that goes, you know, with all of the, the beauty standards by society, by media, um, And so it turned into this deep fascination. And, uh, you know, I remember one day I was packing my lunch for school because I started packing my lunch in in high school. And um, I just had put like five different fruits in a brown bag. And my stepmom was like, you know, you're going to need more than that for energy throughout the day. And I just told her, I was like, no, I'm doing um, a fast where all I eat are fruits and vegetables. Uh, and that was sort of like, I think the first time I really like incorporated restriction into my lifestyle. Um, but it went from that to like, you know, having lots of fear foods, um, and, uh, having favorite foods, but making myself restrict food throughout the day to enjoy those favorite foods that I did have. Um, so yeah, it started in about high school is when I, um, started restricting food intake and which led into, uh, a lot of purging with exercise, uh, with taking laxatives. Um, and then I also struggled a lot with exercise addiction. Yeah. And at that time with things at home with food, like a little bit better in terms of like more availability of food. I think that as I got older, especially in high school, I did have more freedom with food. Um, but what I had the most of was like, I could tell, I could come home from a late night of basketball or volleyball practice or cross country practice. And I could lie and tell my dad or my stepmom that I had already eaten if I didn't like what they had made for dinner. um, Or if I didn't want something that was in the house, Uh, it was easier for me to get away with it and say like, oh, I stopped on the way home or so-and-so had like invited me to dinner or, you know, the school had lunch or, or dinner provided. Um, so it was easier for me to kind of fib my way out of eating things I didn't want to eat. Um, but no, I mean, food stayed inconsistent sort of my whole adolescence when I lived with my dad. Um, I moved out of his home when I was 16 years old and 
uh, I moved in with my grandma and my grandpa and they were a lot more considerate over making sure that they had things in the house that I wanted. Um, but all that really did was it gave me more of this control that I felt like I never had before. Uh, so going to the grocery store, uh, it was a really stressful time because I wanted to pick foods that were in line with this healthy way of eating that I thought was going to get me this ideal body that I was after. Um, and I would spend, you know, forever in just one aisle of the grocery store researching all the nutrition labels to try and find what I thought was the best option and the right option for me to get and for me to like, um, consume and still be deemed good enough, um, or, or perfect, uh, which is, like I said, something that I've strived for a lot in my life. So, um, yeah, very inconsistent with my dad. When I moved out, when I was 18 and with my grandparents, uh, I had even more freedom, but that led to a lot more control. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us um I was just wondering do you think there's also a thread of like if you haven't really learned growing up I don't know how to phrase this hopefully you'll get my point um about hunger and fullness signals and like eating normally in inverted commas like how to have um I don't want this to sound too diety but you know have those foods in moderation because you know you can have it again tomorrow because you almost didn't have that experience very much that like actually having the diet rules is kind of helpful in some way because it's like well I know what to do if I'm just following these rules did that make sense yeah no absolutely yeah it's like um you know the structure that uh these ways of eating that I was looking at online and learning from other (laughs) I wouldn't even call them experts at this point but who I thought were experts at the time it gave me this structure that made me feel really safe um because you're right like it was it sort of, when I moved in with my grandparents, it opened this whole door into like this whole new world I had never experienced where like, okay, I am going from inconsistency with food to like, I there's plenty of food here. I also have choice over food that I'm eating. Um, and my, my grandma would cook dinner every night. It was ready at the same time. So there was that consistency. Um, and it was like this, yeah, it, it was scary. It was like taking off my training wheels when I wasn't really ready to ride my bike and just being like, this is too much. Like this is overwhelming. Um, and there was also like a tension between, okay, my grandma's making these yummy meals every single night, but I'm also stuck in this mindset of restriction and I'm battling this war in my head of good and bad foods, which like now, now I know. And you know, you know, too, like, there's no such thing as like a good or bad food. (laughs) Um, But I had this tension of like, I want to enjoy this food my grandma's making, but I have to work for it, because I also know that this is the right way that I should be eating. Um, And so I was really stuck in that. Yeah, just that state of overwhelm, where it was like, I, I don't know how to how to do all this and um, still feel okay about myself at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think I can relate to small parts of that, what you were saying, like being in the supermarket and thinking, oh, what's the healthiest and having to look at packets for quite a many minutes, um, you know, and getting really stressed about that. Or, um, yeah, once my granddad wanted to make me a sandwich, but I was thinking, oh, my God, 
what kind of bread is he going to use? What's in the sandwich? Or is it the right time to be eating this? And then I said, no, but then almost, I think when I was recovering, I was recovering for moments like that, that I could just say, oh yes, I will. Or, you know, um, I was using the example uh, with my client the other day about like, it's a bit random, but do you know if like, um, you've got a kid or like, you know, a kid who's done some baking at school and they yeah. haven't like, they bake something that's like really average and not great, but you like want to eat it because it's a nice thing to do for them. Like, cause they've put the effort in and I feel like when I had disordered eating or an eating disorder, it's like, I wouldn't have been able to just have that thing. And, you know, all the kind of thoughts that come with that, that I don't want to go into because it's probably not helpful for people to have them like reinforced, but then just to be like, okay, do you know what? I will have that for that person. Yeah. I think yeah, it's nice to it's be able a, to do that. Yeah. It's a way we can show love to people that we care about and people that care about us. Um, and I'm sure that you can relate to like saying no, saying no to those experiences when you are stuck in disordered eating, like you you really do push so many people away and you hurt so many people's feelings and not, it's not on purpose. Like I know that I never meant to hurt anyone's feelings, but it was like, I, I know that the times when I would say yes to a sandwich my grandma made or, you know, a, a baked good that someone offered me. Um, even if I said yes in that moment, it was torture that I was going through in my mind of like automatically right after saying yes, just like, you know, beating myself up on the inside and being like, why did you do that? Like, how are, how are we going to compensate for this? Like, how are we going to make up for this? This isn't part of the plan. Like, you know, this is what you're supposed to eat today. Now you're, now you've fallen off track and you have to, you know, run X amount of miles to make up for it. Like it's this whole spiral of thoughts that happens when we do say yes to things that to other people, it's like, that's normal. Like someone made you a cookie or is offering you a cookie, like why not take it? Um, but it is so freeing, you know, as a recovered individual now, um, having those things happen and, and being able to say, yes, you know what, like that does sound good. No, it wasn't part of the plan. I didn't think that I was going to have a cookie today, but that sounds really good. And even if you don't eat the full thing, like maybe you just take a few bites, but you're able to like have freedom in that moment. And um, it's, it feels so powerful, like as a recovered individual to have those moments of intuition where, and spontaneity. Yeah. And I just wanted to pick up on um, what you were saying about um, kind of if, if you did have something that your grandma had made you and then all the thoughts that were going along with that. Cause I think sometimes when someone's struggling with an eating disorder or disordered eating like actually behavior that other people see or like you said you kind of made excuses um not to have dinner like to the outside actually the person might look all right kind of like in, in inverted commas all right <laughs> like <laughs> oh, okay they're just going up but because you can't see all of these thoughts that are going on um in someone's head and all of that distress um that comes with it so I guess for you, when did you realize that something was wrong? Was it someone else noticed in your behavior and thoughts? Or did you realize for yourself, like, this isn't quite right? Yeah. Um, well, for me, it was uh, my body changed quite drastically in a very short amount of time. Um, I was very underweight and uh, for my height and for my age. Um, and 
I looked significantly different than at the start of my eating disorder when I thought that I was just adopting these healthy behaviors. Um, so I had a lot of people, uh, my mom, um, my coaches for different sports, uh, friends of mine, parents of friends coming up to me and, you know, asking me if I was eating enough, uh, telling me I was too skinny. Some people reinforced the way I looked by telling me I looked great, uh, which made things even more confusing. <laughs> um, I, there, you know, there were moms of my friends who were uh, almost like jealous and wanted to know what I was doing to lose weight. Uh, and they would ask me, you know, for, for different tips. Um, but uh, I think I noticed for myself, um, probably when I, probably when my mom, there was one night where my mom came into my bedroom and she basically held me by the shoulders and was really concerned. Um, and she had found a thing of laxatives in my nightstand. Uh, and she had confronted me on the topic and on the matter. And I got really defensive. I got really combative with her for going through my stuff. Um, and it, you know, it seemed like I couldn't trust her and she was someone that was turning her back on me. Um, but she expressed her concern. She was in tears, really upset. And I was just like trying to defend the matter, like to the end, because I didn't want to admit that I had a problem, but only because I knew I had a problem. Like I wouldn't have been hiding, taking laxatives if I didn't have a problem. Um, but I also didn't know what life without those behaviors looked like, because in my mind, those behaviors that I was taking part in were keeping me so safe. Um, so I felt like I really did have to defend what I was doing. And I had to make up stories for why I was doing what I was doing. Um, and really like make my mom feel bad for even like confronting me. Uh, but that's probably when I realized, but that's definitely not like when I took action. Um, I, uh, I still stayed in denial for probably a year after that. Um, and then I called my mom and sort of like let her know that I had realized that I had an eating disorder. This was like probably a year and a half after she confronted me that night. And I apologized to her. Um, it was after a college course that I attended where they talked about um, eating disorders in detail and how they affect the individual, how they affect the family. Um, felt like the instructor was talking directly to me, went home, called my mom bawling, told her I was sorry, uh, still didn't make any changes and continued going down an eating disorder path for like another year. So after the initial recognition, it took me about two years to actually start the journey of recovery. Yeah, I think a lot of people could probably relate to that as well some people it is like oh I realized something's wrong okay let's change it but for a lot of people like you say because the behaviors are having some function they're keeping you safe or um sometimes with the binging people are like oh I don't know how to cope get through my day without this binge or I guess just the fear of your body changing again like there's lots of reasons why you might like you say hold on to it and be defensive and maybe go in and out of realizing oh there's something wrong to like oh, actually, no, I'm fine. Back to, oh, is this fine? Um, yeah. And so I guess when you did 
take action did you seek help yeah um so I I didn't seek help from like a treatment facility um but I did start like a self-recovery journey that I openly told others about so that I could have the support I needed and the accountability I needed um and that happened after I went to therapy for a little bit and realized like okay I need to make some changes in what I'm doing um but really like the path that I took to recovery was just through like my own education because I had so much misinformation when it came to eating disorders. Um, and I think that like when I initially did realize I had an eating disorder, um, I, because I didn't have any education other than that one class that I took in college, um, it was really easy for me in my mind to think like, okay, like I just need to make these simple changes and I'll be better. Um, and so I think that I really did convince myself that I was better after I like, you know, stopped taking the laxatives when I gained a little bit more weight. Um, but like, I was still excessively exercising. Like I was still restricting food intake. Like I was still doing all of these things, but it was almost like, I, you know, I'll let go of a little bit, but like, I'm not willing to let go of it all. Um, and I thought like, if I let go of a few things, then I can at least get these people in my life who care about me off my back. And like, I can keep doing what I want in secret. Um, and yeah, so, uh, anyway, when I did start my journey to recovery, uh, the things that helped me most were, you know, books from other survivors, uh, podcasts, interviews, like listening to people who had gone through or were going through something similar that I was going through. Um, and then talking to other people in person. Um, those were probably like the top three things that helped me, but, uh, yeah, my journey started out really secret at first and really private because I held so much shame. Um, but I really think like the most transformation happened when I got to hear from other people, um, which that's why I'm so happy this podcast is on storytelling and like cultivating confidence to tell your story, because that's really what helped me most was like in, even though I was covered in shame still, and I was still living so much of my life in private and I was still taking part in eating disorders, eating disorder behaviors, I got to hear from people who I felt like truly did see me more than like anyone else in my life who was trying to help me, but whose words and actions were just harming me more than they were helping me because they too didn't have the education that they needed. Um, so that's, uh, that's what really started my journey forward. Yeah, I think that's the nice thing about podcasts actually and some feedback that I've got that sometimes people are like, oh, like either myself or the guest has said something that someone was thinking or feeling, but they didn't realize they were thinking or feeling that almost, or they couldn't put it into words to tell other people. And then suddenly it's like, oh, okay, that makes so much more sense now. And actually now I can understand that I can, you know, take some action and do something about it um, because it's been like verbalized now or kind of helping people connect dots as well um, yeah that I think is really important so how did you feel when you like told someone for the first time what was going on <laughs> um I felt really exposed and scared because I knew that um I knew that there was a level of accountability that came with my vulnerability like I I think the first person 
outside of my mom that I told was uh, she was actually a complete stranger um, until I guess we had only known each other for a few hours when I told her I was uh, studying abroad in Australia. And um, that's really where a lot of like my healing took place. But she openly, I don't even remember how the conversation started, but openly started telling me that she struggled with bulimia and was in recovery. And I was just like sitting there, like trying to sort sort of hide like my, um, I don't know, like my surprise look on my face just because she was so open. And I was like, wow, like I'm, she's inspiring me like by being so open with her story, but also like now I feel like there's almost, you know, she deserves maybe something back from me to tell her a little bit about me, um, which I did. And she was a really safe person that I felt I could trust. Uh, and we just had this long conversation about, you know, what both of us were struggling with. And, you know, I don't know if that conversation was really like helpful at that time, or if it only kind of reinforced things for both of us. But I do know that like, after I told her at because she was one of the first people I told, I felt very exposed, very scared because it was like, wow, this is like the biggest secret I have. Um, and now someone has, now someone else has it too. <laughs> and can I trust them? And, you know, I've struggled a lot in my life with uh, a fear of abandonment. And so that fear that like someone has something precious of mine and are they going to leave because they, know, they now know this about me? Um, or are they going to like accept me for who I am when I'm not like wearing a mask or, or putting on this facade? Uh, how did it go? <laughs> She's still a great person who I keep in contact with and who's been supportive of my journey. Um, and, you know, that's what I found with other people who I told my story to as well. Um, I think I've got really used to that feeling of being exposed because we are in a sense exposed when we tell someone uh the dark parts of us and it's uncomfortable because you know that's that's what vulnerability is it's uncomfortable it's scary um but there's so much reward on the other side of it that now I just know like yes it, I feel exposed I feel like I talked too much I overshared um I have all these intrusive thoughts but it's so the, the reward in comparison to that is so worth it, which is uh, not feeling like you have to hide yourself, um, feeling like there's space to show up as who you are authentically, um, feeling accepted. And also like as someone who uh, has spent a lot of their life people pleasing, um, just being able to sort of take my power back and be like, you know, not everyone's going to like me. Not everyone is going to accept me, but this is who I am. Um, and I'm proud of who I am and I'm going to share that with other people. How do you think someone could like start to share their experience, be that with their friends or like you say, even someone they kind of just met or maybe like now you've obviously got your book and you're on podcasts. How do you think someone could start to share their experience if they are worried what other people might think or about that feeling of being exposed? Yeah. Um, I think a great way to start sort of the, the path of vulnerability or telling your story is just to start small um, with the people that you are most comfortable with, whether that is like 
your friends or family, um, or, you know, a close friend that you can trust or someone who's going through something similar, who, you know, is going to understand where you're coming from. I think it's so important to be intentional about who you're choosing to share those parts of yourself with at first. Um, but I also think, you know, that there are so many different ways that we can express our story or that we can story tell. It's not only through like one-on-one uh, -on -one interaction um, or, you know, interpersonal communication, but it could also be through painting. It could be through um, songwriting or singing. It could be through, uh, you know, writing poetry or uh, writing a story. Like there are so many different ways that we can express parts of ourselves um, and kind of reminds me of like, it's easier for me sometimes to tell somebody something over text message than it is to tell them over the phone, um, which is something I'm still working on. But I think that that's the same with when you're starting to get comfortable telling your story and you don't know really how to go about it is to start with something that you're comfortable with uh, and, and get creative. Like, you know, give little hints to people around you that this is something that's important to me, or this is, this is a part of me. Um, and that's going to start questions among other people. And that's going to lead you into conversation with other people, but it's, it's going to help you um, and sort of ease you into it versus just like jumping in the deep end. <laughs> yeah. I really like what you said actually about exploring different um, avenues like art or poetry I was thinking when you were talking like different ways to express that about yourself like I'm not particularly arty so I never really think about that I do have some clients who are really good at art <laughs> and kind of use it but I never think to like suggest yeah. that to people um as a way but I can imagine it can be quite therapeutic to kind of get it down on paper just get it out really rather than just rounding round in your head yeah I mean yeah like especially with writing when we write like if we write something down enough times, or even if we tell our story enough times, like that's creating a new narrative for ourselves. Like it's creating these new neural pathways that are helping our, like helping teach our brain, like the new narrative that we want to share with others or even believe for ourselves. Um, and so it is so cathartic, whatever medium you're choosing to use as your outlet to do that and do more of it and try, you know, try things that maybe you're not comfortable with. Um, I know for me, where I started to first be vulnerable was on social media. I found that a really comforting place. Um, and I also found a lot of people who were going through something similar, um, who I was able to connect with, people who were also just starting to share their stories. Um, and I still keep in contact with a lot of those people. I have so many online friends uh, who I met through my recovery and who also were going through recovery on their own at the same time that I was. Um, so yeah, I mean, even, even if it's as simple as, you know, sharing a post on social media, I think that that's a great way to start out too. It's just, some people are more private, some are more public and it's whatever you're most comfortable with. Yeah, I think the other thing with social media is you can actually just make a new account as a recovery account because um I remember when I first started my health food blog which I don't have anymore but if you like scroll way down my Instagram now to the very bottom you'll see me like eat some chia seeds they're really good for you um but like I was mortified when people who I actually knew in real life found out about it 
because it was like somehow it's okay for me to just share with like random strangers who I don't know and like then I was fine about it once I kind of got more confident um in it but obviously just to say you can like have a private Instagram account and stuff to know if it was just for you to be sharing content deciding the people who um we're gonna let see it yeah absolutely yeah it can kind of be like your little secret like yeah your your secret life that you're like yeah getting comfortable telling and showing to other people before you show it to maybe your close circle of people or you know your normal following on Instagram or or Facebook um and just going back to your food blog so many of the people who I was recovering with online including me, like all of our accounts started off as food accounts. Um, (laughs) And some, yeah, like, I don't know if you have any thoughts as to why that is, but I know that like, I, when I started my food account and thought I was like starting a recovery account, it was really just another like clean eating, healthy eating uh, Instagram. So it's, it's funny. I talked with a couple of my friends online about this and they're like, remember those days when we were like big foodies and we were sharing all these recipes and trying to tell other people how to eat healthy. (laughs) Yeah. I think some of it. So for me, um, I had a phase of restrictive eating that was like quite clean eating, but then it turned into like definitely not eating like enough quantity and over-exercising. Then I started binge eating um, like in the night really uncontrollably um, and then things kind of evened out like I was eating more variety and more quantity and more different foods and so then I was thinking oh I'm recovered but I still like want a healthy and vert- healthy in terms of like oh I'll have uh, coconut sugar but I won't have white sugar that kind of like yes quote unquote healthy um, <laughs> thing and then I suppose it's just because I was seeing other people do it. And I do remember having a conversation with my boyfriend at the time about it. And he was like, oh, you should just go for it and like make your own if you're inspired. So it felt like a positive outlet. But I think it's maybe somehow like was justifying Mm -hmm. eating that in a way because it's like, oh, I'm allowed to eat this bowl of porridge with my chia seeds in it and some berries are like arranged nicely on top and like all this stuff because it's for Instagram and it was actually really interesting so then for me um I wasn't recovered because it's like when you were talking earlier I was thinking like I was still um having some episodes of binging and purging even though in my head I was recovered then and healthy with my health food blog um but then things got worse um like the sort of the next year when I lived on my own um and I was still doing like the healthy breakfast healthy quote (laughs) um breakfast pictures but then when I was actually recovering I realized I I don't want maybe I just want like just some porridge maybe I don't want to have to like put berries on it and put some like cacao nibs on it and some bee pollen and make it look really pretty maybe I don't <laughs> want all of that like it's just really interesting and then it was a lot of efforts to do that but actually I genuinely enjoyed it when I was in the phase of like making friends through it and stuff like that was a nice in some ways a very nice phase of my life yeah. including disordered eating but I did enjoy it <laughs> yeah I, I I relate to that I I think like the further I got in my recovery, the more exhausting keeping up with all of that. Yeah. Sort of like pretty looking food. Um, 
became yeah it was a it became a lot more exhausting than in the beginning where it was like sort of a must for me it's like it was like I have to make this bowl look perfect and pretty for me to feel okay eating it <laughs> um because yeah there's I struggled sometimes with just like yeah the the way that food looked and how it was arranged on my plate and stuff so um I think like having a food account kind of catered to that and was a kind of catered to like my obsession with food a bit like sharing all the healthy ingredients I was using and um yeah all those things but I do think like especially now <laughs> I look back at those pictures and I'm like wow I cannot believe I put that much effort into uh into that smoothie bowl or like whatever but you know it was it like you're right it was fun even when it was disordered like I have a lot of really good memories from when my account was a food account but I definitely yeah don't don't post that kind of stuff as often anymore and if I do it's very intuitive like oh this is fun I didn't mean for this to turn out the way that it did <laughs> but I'm going to share it with other people yeah my breakfast now is probably like cornflakes <laughs> and the baby's on like his little change mat with his uh what do you call it jungle jimmy no I call it a jungle jimmy but obviously not is it like do you know those yeah that they lie down and look at the toys yeah and I'm just like mommy's eating her breakfast yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, no great. <laughs> cereal is the best <laughs> um so I guess we talked about like the benefits of sharing your story and I think we touched on some maybe downsides in terms of like some feelings that might come with it that you might have to work through or someone did find your Instagram account um do you think there's any other like downsides to sharing your story that people might have to navigate yeah, um, I think one of the downsides to come with telling your story is uh, maybe telling details that aren't going to benefit other people in the way that you might hope for them to. Um, and I think that the way around that is um, making sure that you give yourself the time and space and to have moments of cathartic storytelling where it's you you know it's not going to, like you know it's just for you um a good example of that is like writing in your journal like you know when you write in your journal like that's just for you it doesn't matter what you say it doesn't matter how your grammar is how your spelling is like that's for you to get out your anger to get out your resentment your sadness like whatever feelings you're going through um and I know for me when I was writing my book um, the first draft looked a lot different than the final draft because the first draft was a lot of me getting out that anger, getting out um, my, yeah, just that held in resentment that I suppressed for many years with my parent, like regarding my parents, regarding my relationship with food, my eating disorder, my body, um, all of those things. And uh, I think that we all need to go through that stage where we allow ourselves to just write or express freely without a goal in mind. Um, and I think that that's what leads us to really knowing and to refining what our story truly is and what parts of our story truly matter um, and are going to share the message that we are meant to or want to share with other people. Um, and what, what parts of our story are going to resonate with whatever audience that we're trying to like speak to, um, even if it's just like a close circle of friends. But the truth is that like, 
not every single detail of our stories needs to be told. Some things are better left unsaid um, and they actually add power to your story and to your message. And so I think, you know, the most important thing is to just be able to um, express freely, get all of the gunk out of your system, like let it all out, air it all out, and then pick from everything you've expressed freely and really try and hone in on whatever whatever you are wanting to share um and ask yourself like what your intentions are with that like what value is this going to add to other people um and that's an important question to ask yourself because if you don't really know the answer to that then maybe it's not something that you should be necessarily like sharing with others uh, I think there's differences isn't that because I was thinking when you were talking like um so I've got a really good friend who actually during the lockdowns and stuff, um, she'd moved back to know where I live and we went on loads of walks. And that was just like, just either one of us would just talk about what was going on until it felt like it was a bit resolved or made a bit more sense, uh, whether it was about work or relationships or whatever it was. And almost like there wasn't, there wasn't a point to it. I think it was just for us to, like you say, air it out, just get it out instead of letting it all build up so I think if there are people like that my husband has to be that now I don't think he's always happy about it <laughs> but he's signed up <laughs> to Absolutely. be that person as well um to talk it out but then like you say actually sometimes having those more intentional um ways of saying things to certain people maybe that is because you want to get support for the eating disorder but it can help you like you say to either um, journal about it or have a think about it before like how could you convey that in the way yeah. that's gonna try and get the outcome that you want um from it rather than just spilling everything out. right but, but like we do we like you said like if you have someone that you can confide in and, and that's kind of like the dynamic of your relationship or one of the dynamics to re- your relationship is to have these vents like these sessions where you just both vent you get the day off your chest or like with your partner you share with them something that frustrated you like we all need people like that in our lives too um I think it's just like if you're trying to share your message with a greater um to a a greater amount of people or with a bigger audience like that's when we sort of need to yeah let those sessions help us let our venting help us but with other people but also like um take that and think about you know what yeah what what is the greater message in all of it just it kind of related but I think I was thinking it earlier do you find it interesting like I find it interesting when I go on a podcast and someone asks me about my story but then sometimes people ask me questions and I've like never thought about that in relation to the eating disorder before or some like still a light bulb will click and like oh I can't think of an example now because I haven't thought of one uh, but sometimes it's like I can't believe I, n- I never thought about it in that way and now I get some new insight into what was going on and like you were saying it's that narrative like the narrative about the eating disorder has has changed a little bit for me yeah yeah it's those light bulb moments that other people and I think it's like sometimes it's not even something that we've heard for the first time it's just like the right person saying saying it at the right time um and yeah some you know earlier you mentioned something about like uh hunger fullness and whether or not like my relationship with food as a child uh related to having a hard time being able to sort of uh know my hunger fullness as I got older and I was like absolutely but it's not that's not really something that's like ever popped into my head um 
at least not in that way. So yeah, you did that for me today. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Um, So I guess what was the inspiration for you sharing your story in a book? Uh, Yeah, well, I, um, I, at the time of deciding to write my book was uh, very much so um, consumed and wrapped up in a Christian community um, and would have considered myself very, uh, very religious at that time. Um, not so much anymore. I, I am in a different way. Uh, <laughs> but um, when I decided to write my book, I really felt a prompting from God to write this book to tell my story. And I really had this clear message that like, I needed to share my story and that there were other people who needed to hear it. And it was going to help them. And I think that that what really uh, motivated me to actually sit down and do it was remembering and thinking about all of the people whose stories helped me um, and being inspired by those people and wanting to sort of replicate what they did for me. Um, and so, yeah, it was kind of a combination of like my faith and also like this, my own drive from other people who had inspired me. Um, but that's sort of what started me writing. And I actually started writing the book in my journal. And it was just sort of one of those journal entries that was like, I don't know, like, you know, I don't know how I'm going to start this book. But like, if I did write a book, maybe here's how I would do it. And I just started like writing and going along with it. And part of that journal entry is actually part of the introduction now. Um, Obviously, it's very revised. And I added a lot more to the introduction of the book after that entry. But um, yeah, it was really neat that I got to like incorporate some of that journal entry into the start of the book. I think even if it hadn't turned into a book, it sounds like it was very beneficial for you to go through that process in your journal. And I just want to ask you, so your book is called Good Enough. Believing beautiful through trauma, through life, through disorder. What does good enough mean to you? <laughs> um, yeah, I love that question. Uh, and no one's ever asked me that. But, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier how I've struggled a lot with perfection in my life. And I, I like to tell people that I am a recovering perfectionist because there are still times when I find myself uh, trying to perfect things around me, whether it's like my living environment, um, my uh, goals that I set, like whatever it is. Um, And so good enough for me was like a really big message to myself that like, it's good enough. Like I am good enough. Um, My environment, what's around me is good enough. Like even if there are all these things on my to-do list, like it's good enough, like just how it is. Um, and I think that I've had to learn a lot through my journey to really sit in the good enough, even when there are things that could be improved or could be better. Um, because I spent a lot of my life really rushed and not present in what was around me or what I was doing, uh, because I was trying to achieve so many things at once, or I was trying to be so many different versions for so many different people. Um, and so good enough is is just like resting in what is it's learning to be present in the now and accepting that that all that's unfinished all that could be better like it's just learning to be and to uh be content 
Yeah, thank you for sharing. Uh, I hope people really listen to that because it's one thing to like get that on an intellectual level, but sometimes it's another to actually implement it, isn't it? Like I also say I'm a recovering perfectionist because I'll find myself (laughs) getting worked up about stuff or spending way too much time on doing things. And then I'm like, okay, let's take a step back. Like you say, is this good enough? Yes. Could I spend hours trying to make it different? Yes. Is it worth it? No. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a skill to know when stuff is good enough and also like you say actually appreciate oh yeah this is good enough in a positive way yeah as well um so what would you say to someone who came to you and said I just want to eat normally mm. um I would tell them that normal looks different for everyone um and that however they do choose to eat um is normal for them because we're all so unique and we all have different needs. Um, And I would make sure that there really is no normal or right way to eat, that it's all dependent on their needs and and especially their body's needs. And to eat normally uh, for yourself means to really tune into what your body's asking of you um, and to not sort of neglect uh, or deprive it of what it's asking for, even if what it's asking for are things that you've been taught aren't normal or aren't right or aren't good for you. Um, So yeah, I think, uh, you know, to eat normally looks different for everyone. um, And it's sort of a journey you have to go on to figure out what it looks like for you. Well, thank you so much for coming and for sharing your story with us and your advice. Um, Where can people find you if they want to learn more? Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm on Instagram uh, pretty often. Uh, My handle is at underscore sincerely Carly. I also am on Twitter at sincerely Carly. And then I have my book on Amazon, on Barnes and Noble, on Audible and iTunes. Um, and you can also purchase signed copies from me if you just send me a message. Uh, usually I have them available on my website, but my website is under construction right now. Um, and then I also publish new content through various publications on various topics, but um, a lot of my content focuses on mental health and eating disorders specifically. Uh, and that's on Medium, which is uh, an online writing platform. And my handle on there is at Sincerely Carly too. So pretty much anywhere you go, at Sincerely Carly. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Just Eat Normally podcast. I hope you found this enjoyable, interesting and insightful and informative. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to hear the next episode. And just remember that you can check out the show notes for contact details and extra resources.